Well, the story of a man who was shipwrecked on a desert island. He was industrious and hardworking, so he decided to make the most of it. And by the time he was rescued, 15 years later, he had transformed the island to a little town, complete with roads and buildings. His rescuers were amazed at what he had accomplished for himself, all by himself. And so they asked for a tour of the island, and he happily obliged. He said that the first building you see on the left here, that's my home. You'll see that I have a comfortable three-bedroom estate, complete with indoor plumbing, a sprinkler system. It's my tool shed out back for all my lawn tools. The rescue party was astonished. It was better than some of their homes in the mainland. He said, that building over there, that's the store where I do my shopping. Next to it is my bank across the street. That's the gym where I exercise. They continued to be amazed, but then the rescuers noticed two other buildings, and they asked, what are those? And he said, the one on the left, that's where I go to church. And they asked, well, what about the other one on the right? And he said, oh, well, that's where I used to go to church. It's a humorous story on Christian conflict, but I think it's met with a sort of nervous laughter because we could almost see it really happening. Conflict has been a real problem in the church. We've all heard real stories of conflict in the church. Maybe you've even been a part of some conflict in the church. It's one of those acknowledged realities. We understand it it shouldn't be this way, but it is. And don't get me wrong, conflict is a substantial problem in the world, too, Our society is increasingly marked by division. Conflict is flourishing on an individual and cultural level. It seems the news is filled with never-ending stories of disputes, fights, lawsuits, even murders. The world is outright characterized by conflict. The difference, though, is that the stakes are higher with the church. Meaning God has given the church a mission. The church is not just a building. It's not just a social club. Rather, the church is meant to be a body of believers, those redeemed and transformed by Christ Jesus. There are people that have been made new by the gospel, and then they're united together so that they might reach the rest of the world with that same transforming gospel. And the world, with all of its conflict and division, desperately needs the good news of Jesus Christ. Their only hope for knowing life and peace and hope and eternal life. And so the church then is to be a witness of the gospel. And that includes the peace the gospel produces. But you see, there's a real problem when conflict flourishes in the church. It greatly diminishes the church's capacity to witness. The church should be a, a trophy case of fallen, broken, different people who in the world would naturally divide and and hate one another, but they still come together as one. There are people at peace with God, at peace with one another, all through the cross of Christ. That should be the case, and positionally in Christ, that, that is the case, but practically, sin creeps in the church and rears its ugly head. And when it does, Conflict erupts and a wedge forms between spiritual brothers and sisters. And this lack of harmony within can have great implications without because then the world sees the church. They know that their lives are full of conflict. They see the church as no different and they'll label us as mere hypocrites. 
And we know this is not God's plan for the church. You might recall how Jesus prayed for the future church in his high priestly prayer, John 17, 21. He prayed that they would all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And then he says, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Christ himself hinges the witness to the world on the unity, the harmony of the church. And so this is what I mean when I say the stakes are higher for the church. When conflict erupts, needs to be resolved, needs to be reconciled. The more, however, you hear stories of unresolved conflict in the church, the more discouraged you might get. Is true harmony in the church even possible? Can it, can it really happen? And for this, for this reason, some idealize the early church. You know, the good old days, literally that the very old days right after Christ, when it seems like, I mean, that was a time of, of real peace, right? They all were one. They had things in common. It seems like the early church was just full harmony and peace and, and oneness, right? In many respects, it was. But the more you study the New Testament, you find the early church had plenty of their own conflict. So in Acts chapter 6, very early on, a conflict erupts over favoritism toward native Hebrew widows. In Philippians 4, you have two women, Yodia and Syntyche, and they're having a personal conflict. It's spilling over into the church, and it's so serious. People are taking sides. Paul has to call them out by name and tell them to get along. In Ephesians and Galatians, he must remind the Jews and Gentiles to live together. In 1 Timothy, he has to tell them to stop wrangling about words, which leads to meaningless arguments and debates. And then don't even get started on the Corinthians. I mean, they were fully divided. They had split up into petty little sects, and, and they were dividing along those lines. And I could go on, but the point is that there was plenty of division in the early church. It's just a reality in a fallen world that so long as sin exists and reigns, well, there, there's going to be division and strife. This is why strife exists in marriage. You have two people who may be two genuine Christians, but, well, they're, they're also still sinners. And if they ever get to the point where they're, they're living more for their own selfish interests than God's interests, well, expect some conflict. And the same goes for the church where dozens or even hundreds of people may come together and they may be redeemed, but they're still sinners. And when self-concern thrives, well, watch out. Conflict and division will result. This is all what we find similarly in the book of James. And you can turn now to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. You might recall this is one of the main reasons James writes he was dealing with a church in conflict. And keep in mind, we believe James is the first book of the New Testament written. So talk about having some serious conflict pretty early on. These scattered Christians were facing a lot of outside pressure. But this was all made worse by the internal strife, turmoil, personal conflict. They had class warfare where the rich were discriminating against the poor. Partiality was a real problem and battles were being fought in the church. The weapon of choice was the tongue, as we learned in chapter 3. This was happening because the church was starting to take in the wisdom of the world. 
You may recall that from the end of chapter 3, the world's philosophy or the world's worldview is all about what? Self. It's centered on self, serving self. And when that mentality reigns, you can expect disorder. It's like he said back in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. And we expect that in the world, but the same will happen when such selfishness enters the church. The church should be known by peace. And that is the result when God's wisdom rules in the hearts and minds of the people. But when the church starts to buy into the world's ways, it's going to reap the same fruit of disorder and evil. And so that, that's what was starting to happen in, in the churches among the Christians to whom James writes. And so now in chapter 4, he's going to deal with this head on. He's going to address the conflict that results from them just buying into the ways of the world head on. This passage now in chapter 4 really, in many respects, forms the heart of James's letter. It can be split up into three parts, verses 1 through 3, the source of conflict, verses 4 through 6, the explanation of conflict, and verses 7 through 12, the resolution of conflict. And over the next three weeks, we're going to explore this passage that we might understand conflict, where it comes from, why it happens, and then what to do about it. How do you resolve it? We need to learn this, that we might experience peace in our own lives and our own homes and our own churches. And that in turn, as we mentioned, is absolutely vital to our gospel witness to the world. And so I'll say again, learning to fight conflict is high stakes for us in the church. And you would do well to become an expert in this matter of conflict and conflict resolution. We're going to start this morning by looking at the first part, verses 1 through 3, the source of conflict. And let's go ahead and read now James 4, 1 through 3. He carries on and says, what is the source of of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures." Now, it should go without saying, you can't hope to get the solution to conflict right if you don't get the source of conflict right. What's really happening here? Where is it coming from? What's causing this conflict? Who or what is to blame? You have to nail down the source before you can worry about the right solution. And that's what this first passage is all about. And so let's just go through it to find the source of conflict. We'll begin with, well, first... Conflict's source. Number one, conflict's source. From verse one. Look there again where he says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Beginning chapter four, James asks, 
What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Where do they come from? How do they come about? Who is to blame? He uses two key words here to describe our battles, quarrels and conflicts. Polemos is the first word for quarrels. We get that word polemics from it. It is an old word that originally referred to war, and it came to mean just arguments. And I'm sure you can see that connection, how that came about. And so James is asking, what, what, essentially, what's the source of your warfare? Why are you arguing and bickering, battling with one another? And if quarrels is the word for large-scale warfare, the second word, conflicts, that's the word for individual battles. It's another warfare term. But he's speaking figuratively, like we still do today. You might speak of, you know, a war of words, a, a battle brewing in Congress, legal fights, so forth. But this military imagery, it's pretty fitting when we're describing personal conflict. I mean, you could actually say all wars begin with some unresolved conflict. And we hear that we're, we're primarily concerned with warfare on a personal level, this relational level. I mean, imagine coming out of your house and you find your two neighbors fighting in the street. They're yelling at one another, calling names. They're getting pretty amped up. They might start actually fighting. And so you, you step in, you're going to try and broker peace. And so naturally you would ask, you know, what's going on here? What, what, how did this happen? What's the source of this conflict? You, you got to have to pin that down. Like, why is this happening? Now, the thing is, though, how would most people answer that question? I mean, if you ask these two neighbors fighting, what would they most likely say? Well, they both would probably just blame the other person. Well, he's the source. He started this. It's his problem. He is to blame for this conflict. I mean, those in the world who walk in pride and seek to serve self, they're masters of the blame game. What is the source of your conflict in life? Well, it's not you. It could not possibly be you. You're a good person. It's got to be something else, someone else, something outside of yourself. Other people are always to blame. Why do you have trouble and conflict in life? Well, you know, it must be your spouse's fault. He or she makes you act a certain way. They're to blame. Or it's your parents' fault. You know, they raised you wrong. They didn't do things right. They're to blame. Maybe it's the fault of circumstances. I mean, you're not really to blame for punching that hole in the wall. I mean, you had a bad day. What else could you do? It might even be God's fault. I mean, he could have stopped you from getting into the accident, and he didn't. So you have a right to be angry. And this blame game for sin and conflict, it's nothing new. It's been going on from the beginning. Man in his fallen pride passes the buck and is an expert at putting responsibility for his own actions on everything and anything but himself. And so, for example, King Saul blamed the people for taking the spoil from the Amalekites, which was devoted to destruction. And likewise, Aaron, the high priest, he blamed the people. They, they made him forge that golden calf. The Israelites themselves in the wilderness blamed God for their trials and troubles. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. You know, Eve was tempted, but you know, Satan didn't make her sin. He didn't make them sin. They still had a choice. And later when God confronted them over the rebellion, how did they respond? 
God asks Adam, did did you eat from the tree? This is a gracious question, giving Adam an opportunity to repent. But he responds and he says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Adam blames Eve and God. He blames Eve like it's her fault. I mean, she gave it to me and, and I ate. It's her fault, but he also blames God. You know, it's the woman you gave to be with me. I mean, he, he fell asleep one day and woke up married. <laughs> He's like, you gave me this woman. This is, this is your fault. He blames Eve. He blames God. Eve, in turn, she's later questioned. She blames Satan. The serpent deceived me and I ate. You know, the, the devil made me do it. In reality, though, they had no one to blame but themselves. They were each 100% responsible for their actions. But ever since now, it's just a part of our fallen natures to do just like they did and to blame something else, someone else for our sin and the resulting conflict. So, yes, if you're going to ask those two neighbors fighting in the street, who's to blame? Surely they both would adamantly blame the other person. This is just the world's answer to the source of conflict. It's always something else. And by the way, if that's true, what's the solution to conflict? If the problem is outside of yourself, well, then to them, the solution is going to be outside of yourself. It's it's other people. You don't need to change because you're not the source. Other people need to change. They need to get fixed. They need to be removed. Hey, they may even need to get punished. That's the solution. Otherwise, look, you have no choice. You will be forced to respond a certain way. So when your kids put their dirty shoes up on the table again, you don't have a choice. They are making you angry. Or when that person cuts you off on the freeway, I mean, look, your hands are tied. You have to respond by speeding up and cutting them off, right? Or even in an extreme case, the drug addict may blame her parents and say, look, this is your fault. You made me this way. You didn't support me, and you are to blame. Look, I'm not saying that other people are not to blame for offending us, instigating us, tempting us, even sinning against us. But the point I'm making is when you respond in sin, that's 100% on you. Do you know the divorce rate for second marriages? It's about 66%. And the divorce rate for third marriages is about 75%. Those are crazy high numbers, but they also make perfect sense. And why do people get divorced the first time? Typically because of unresolved conflict. There's just too much fighting. They can't fix it. And of course, the other spouse is always to blame. I mean, if only they were married to someone nicer, someone smarter, someone better, someone kinder, things would be better. They wouldn't have all this fighting. And so they get divorced, they get remarried, and what do you know? Conflict has just followed them to their new marriage, and it's all the same. Because it's not just the other person, it's also living within them. You know, the world in its wisdom plays this blame game. It's fueled by pride and self, but scripture does not. God's word leaves zero room for blaming others over your sin. People may sin against you and offend you and afflict you, and you may suffer terrible circumstances, 
But none of these things make you respond in sin, which breeds conflict. No external force makes you sin. External forces may give occasion for sin, but they're not the source of sin. I'll say that again. External forces may give an occasion for sin, but they're not the source of sin. What is the source? Well, back to verse 1. He says it pretty straightforward. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? This war imagery continues in James and Vision's an internal battle taking place in your members. And members here, he's not talking about church members. He means members of your body, your flesh. He reveals there's an inner war going on. And this establishes a really basic principle in scripture that inner warfare leads to outer warfare. Inner conflict is going to lead to outer conflict. There's some battle going on inside of you. And if you lose that battle, well, it's going to spill out into battles with other people. Did you just get that point? James then specifically says, what is to blame for your conflict? He says, your pleasures. This is the Greek word hedone, which we get the word hedonism from. This word is always used negatively in the New Testament to speak of sinful, self-serving, pleasure-seeking desires. It's a strong desire for pleasure and gratification, most often of a fleshly nature. The ancient Greek hedonists would tell you, never deny yourself. I mean, never say no to any desire or pleasure in life. And that sounds like the way of the world again today. But James is saying that's the real source. The source of your conflict is these pleasures and desires within you, that they're warring on the inside. And so we need to explore that concept a little bit. First, don't get the impression, as some do, that God is against all pleasure, or that the Christian life is all about denying all pleasure. We're never given the picture to that, that we need to live in a monastery, sleep on the floor, eat bread and water, and stare at the wall all day. That's not the picture of the Christian life. No, God made us to be creatures of desire. We have these built-in desires longing to be fulfilled. Some are basic, like food, water, air. Others are relational, like companionship, intimacy. We desire security, comfort, control, success, acceptance, material things, good health, rest, recreation, and so on. And it's not wrong for us to desire these things or to derive pleasure from these things. Like, like a nice meal, for example. The problem is, though, as you likely know, is when you start seeking these desires over God himself. When we start looking for our ultimate fulfillment in the creation, as opposed to the creator. When you start living for the pleasure itself and not the pleasure giver, well, you have idolatry and you're going to find sin and disorder. God created us that we would find our soul's delight in him. He wants us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. God is meant to be the center of our world, worshipped and enjoyed as supreme. And when God is center like that, 
everything else falls into place. It leads us to find meaningful pleasure in the good things of the world he has given to us. We will then happily enjoy them within the bounds he's given. So, for example, intimacy will be enjoyed within the bounds of marriage. Sleep within the bounds of moderation. I mean, there is a right and godly place for all of the desires God created in us. But again, after the fall, the the trouble is we often take these desires out of bounds, out of the bounds God has created. Our hearts have become corrupt, and as Christ himself taught, the twisted desires that come from our hearts are the source of all our sins. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, he said, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. We have this inner corruption where all of the good desires that God made us with, they've become corrupted and twisted, out of control. This is how the desire for intimacy turns into immorality, or the desire for sleep turns into laziness, or the desire for control turns into anger. And this is how some pleasure, some creature comfort, as they've been called, turns into our functional God. Our corrupt desires can become so strong that it leads us to desire something above all else, including God. It could be food. It could be a relationship. It could be your kids. It could be work. It could be recreation. But we start to live for some pleasure because our desires have become purely selfish. And that pleasure in turn now draws us away from God. Imagine that you decide to give your daughter an iPad for her birthday. It's a fun gadget. You want her to have some enjoyment. We love to give gifts to our children. And so it's it's a good thing. It can be a good thing. And she's very excited to receive it. Now, the following week, you come home from work, and before, your daughter would always run to greet you when you came home, and she longed for that relationship. She wanted to spend time with you, but now she's glued to the iPad. You come home, there's no greeting. You call out, there's no response. You say, hey, come over here, and she says, I'm I'm busy. I'm watching something. What has happened here? I thought you gave her a good gift. You did, it was meant to be, but you see, while that gift was meant for her enjoyment, you never intended it to take the place of your relationship or to get in the way of your relationship with her. But now, though, she values time with her iPad over time with you. And so this gift, this pleasure, has become now a curse, a hindrance, a barrier to your relationship. And this is exactly how it goes with us. When we take what God has given us, even good desires like pleasure, rest, food, children, parents, spouses, work, sports, vacation, retirement, all these things, but we start to live for them. We give these things priority 
over the Lord. We cherish our time with these things over time with our Heavenly Father. That is a problem. And now if I can connect the dots, you know, what does this have to do with conflict? We've learned from James before about the inner workings of desire. But now just put it together. When a person gets like this, meaning some desire or pleasure has captured their heart. They're living for that thing. They want nothing else but that thing. When someone gets like that, well, what happens when they don't get that thing? They don't get what they want. What happens when their desire is frustrated? Answer, conflict. That is the source of conflict every single time. Just imagine a world where you were given everything you wanted. Everything, every little small desire of your heart, everything you wanted was just granted to you 24-7, no exceptions. You would never know conflict. People always say yes. There would be no personal conflict in that world. But such a world does not exist. And most of your desires in life, in fact, will not be fulfilled. And the trouble is when you run into someone else who is standing in the way of that desire, who's keeping you from that desire which you functionally worship, well, you're going to have some conflict. This is where conflict comes from. We find more in the second point, conflict's sequence. James exposes now that the sequence of sin and conflict, he continues to convict us, conflict's sequence. Look at verse 2. He continues to blame us, not other people. He says, verse 2, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Remember Joseph and his brothers, they, the brothers, they desperately wanted affection from their father. They wanted to be loved and favored as much as Joseph was. But when they didn't receive that same love and affection, how did they respond? They literally tried to murder their brother. I mean, talk about conflict. Here, though, James is almost certainly being figurative when he accuses these Christians of murder. But their conflict certainly involved a murderous spirit, as Christ himself taught that anger is akin to murder in your heart. But note, the culprit of conflict here is the heart. The source of conflict comes back to these sinful desires in your heart. And so James is now going to further expose the source of conflict by talking about the sequence of conflict. Did you see how it begins? Conflict begins with, he says, lust and envy. Lust and envy. The word for lust, epithemia, It just means strong desire, not always sexual in nature, just any strong desire. Envy is very similar. That's some strong desire directed at someone else where you want what they have. And both of these words are used in a negative sense in verse 2. James doesn't mention the object of lust and envy here. It doesn't really matter. Just it can be anything that you strongly desire. Even good things. 
The husband strongly desires intimacy with his wife. The worker strongly desires a raise at work. The mother strongly desires for her children to sit quietly at the restaurant. The teen strongly desires acceptance among her peers. We would say these are all reasonable desires. They're not inherently sinful. But you see, the next step in this sequence is frustration. It starts with the strong desire, which is not always sinful. But next comes frustration. You don't get what you want. Your desires go unmet and unfulfilled. And so the husband is denied intimacy. The worker is rejected from getting a raise. The children do not sit quietly at the restaurant. And the teen is ostracized at school. See, all these strong desires go unfulfilled. And this happens all the time, right? Where the things we desire, they just, they don't get met. Our desires are frustrated. We might label this as affliction, trials, even temptation. But understand, you are not made to sin. At this point, you still have a choice. Even though frustrated, you can still choose to honor God and not respond sinfully. That's on you. But when the desires of your flesh, those desires being frustrated, when they are stronger than your desire to honor God, to obey God, to love God, well, then conflict will result. And so James finishes the sequence. He says, you lust and you don't have, so you commit murder, conflict. You lash out, you attack, you you cut with maybe daggers of the tongue. You envy, you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel, conflict. You battle to defend your desires or to gain your desires. This is where the husband fights with his wife over intimacy, or the worker rages because he didn't get a raise, or the mother yells at her children to sit quietly at the table, or the teen shuts herself off and plays silent treatment at school. These are all Wrong and sinful responses to affliction. And these are responses which produce conflict. Where you are, at the very least, contributing to conflict. And yet again, they all come from where? From within. From the desires of the flesh and the heart. You know, it's just like James said back in chapter 1. In fact, you can just flip back to chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. He said, God is not to blame for our temptations. And then he says, verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, strong desire, same word. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. He made clear back then that God is not to blame for your sin, nor the devil, nor other people. You are to blame, your own lusts. And when you wrongly respond to the frustration of those lusts, conflict will result. You can't control other people. You can't control your circumstances. There will be plenty of times when your desires are frustrated. People may even sin against you. But you can only control your response, and you must. You must not give in to those lusts of the flesh, but rather the desires of the spirit. 
And at the very least, get straight from James 1 and James 4 that no external force, no person, no circumstance is making you respond in sin, which produces conflict. You are carrying yourself away. So all, your, all of your own lusts and pleasures that are winning that war in your heart, they're just dragging you right into sin and therefore conflict. Look, thankfully, there's some good news here. You know, we've learned previously that look, before salvation, you are actually enslaved to the warped desires of your flesh. That's just Titus 3.3. 3. It says, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to the various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Before salvation, all we had were these lusts of the flesh. There were no desires of the spirit. And those in the world, they're bound by sin. And they're, they're still living in total rebellion against God like we once were. But the good news, of course, is that God sent his son Christ to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, to, to redeem us, to pay for our sins, offer us forgiveness, and even transform us. When you come to faith in Christ, now you're, you're actually made new. And that includes a, a freedom from bondage to those lusts of the flesh. You're instead bound to Christ and given a new heart, complete with new desires. And if you're here this morning and you know Christ, you should be able to testify that you've experienced these new desires. There's a strong part of you now that you want to do what is right. You want to honor the Lord. You want to serve him because, because you love him. He redeemed you. I hope that's your testimony. But at the same time, the challenge comes that though we have these new desires, those old desires don't quite go away. They remain. And this is why conflict persists even in the church. And like I said, when our old fleshly desires, when they overpower our new desires, well, we will be carried away into sin and conflict will be the result. This is, this is how it works. This is the inevitable source and sequence of conflict every single time. And if it persists, it may even lead to conflict with God. So we find finally, number three, conflict's silence. Conflict's silence. Middle of verse two through verse three. He says next, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Here, James is now addressing their frustrated desires. When people don't get what they want, when their strong desires are frustrated and thwarted, more than a few have taken to even blame God. You maybe have a couple and they desire comfort. And so they want to buy a house. Hey, that, that's not an inherently sinful desire. That's a pleasure of the world that can be a blessing. And for that, the husband needs a raise at work to get approved for the loan. And he's so close, but he gets rejected. He gets denied the raise. And so this couple, their strong desire is now frustrated, is rejected. As a result, maybe the husband has an outburst of anger at work. 
yells at his boss, says some things he probably shouldn't, and gets fired. He then stews in bitterness toward his boss, and that quickly spills over into bitterness toward God. You know, God, why wouldn't you just give me a raise so I can buy a house? That's a good thing, right? How could you let me get fired? Now, what am I supposed to do? And conflict with God is born. But you see, there are a pair of problems with such conflict-ridden people. First, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Now, first, for some people, the problem is they're not even taking their request to God. They're not living in faith. They're not trusting God. They're not letting their requests be made known. And like we said, many of your desires in life, they're not inherently sinful. You know, owning a home, for example, that is a, a simple blessing and pleasure in life. That can be a good thing. And the person of faith would ask God for that blessing to sanctify that pleasure and then just trust God with open hands. That, that's a prayer of faith. However, others fail to take their requests before God because maybe deep down they know that their desires are purely selfish. They know that they're not really concerned with God's will, just their own. In reality, they wish they could pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be my name. My will be done on earth as it should be in heaven. You know, they, they recognize the selfish nature of their desires, and so they, they don't even really bother praying out of guilt. Either way, though, they can expect silence. As James continues, though, it seems some people have no such shame, and they pray for what they want. It's just that it's completely driven by their own fleshly lusts. And so James adds, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. I mean, you just want that thing purely for yourself, your glory, your gratification. And you treat God like a magic genie, expecting like an entitled child that he should give you everything you want. I mean, like, didn't Jesus himself say in John fifteen seventeen, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's what he said, John 15, 17. So look, see, he gave us a blank check. And so when God doesn't answer those prayers, he doesn't give in to their selfish desire. They grow bitter with God, conflict with God himself. But you know, the problem with that is, you know, maybe they should read the beginning of that verse. For example, James 15, or John 15, 17, where Christ said first, he said, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, well, then ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And you should know, God does not bow to our will. We are to pray according to his will. And as followers of Christ, we are to so align ourselves with his will that we pray what God wants. We let our requests be made known to God, and then we joyfully submit to his will being done. And so you might pray, for example, that couple might pray, Lord, you know, I strongly desire to get a raise so that I can buy this new house. It's, it's a pleasure. Here's my request. But Lord, your will be done. And just, you just work in such a way that honors your name and sanctifies us. That, that's a prayer of faith that pleases God and he hears. And when God is central like that, when a person is just driven by God, his name and his glory, like I said before, it puts everything in life into its proper place. 
And the result is peace. You may not get every single desire of your heart. That's, that's up to God's will. But you know, as you live for God's heart, he's going to fill your heart with his peace. And that is a promise, you know, Philippians 4, 6 and 7. And that peace he gives to you, that peace will then translate horizontally into a life lived at peace with others. You may not get that race. And so you may not get the house. And you may be bummed, but you serve God more than your selfish desire for comfort. And so at the very least, you're not going to sin over it. You're not going to yell at your boss. You're not going to get bitter with God. Instead, you will trust his will and live in peace with your boss. This is the way. It's not the way of conflict. This is the way of peace. And like Christ said, blessed are the peacemakers. This is natural. Sin is natural for us now being fallen. Sin is natural. Division is natural. That's easy. Peace has to be made. And this is what it takes. Blessed are the peacemakers. There's more we need to learn here. We've learned today that our conflicts in life stem from our own pleasures and lusts, which wage war within us. That's absolutely vital to know. You must know the source of conflict. But next, we're going to ask, how, well, how do we win the war within then? If, we're, if conflict comes from us losing these battles with the, the lusts of our flesh, how do we fight? How do we win that war? We'll find that out. In the next passage. And then after that, you know, what do we do when we blow it and we fall into conflict? How do we resolve conflict? We'll find that two weeks from now. And so more to come. But if you learned anything from this first passage, just learn to stop the blame game. Learn to stop the blame game. Stop blaming God and others for the sin in your life and the resulting conflict. Instead, look inward for the source. See how you contribute to the conflict. You know, the person who's just entirely consumed with what the other person has done to them, they'll never change and grow. And none of what I'm saying, other people don't greatly offend you, sin against you. Maybe they stir some conflict, but you can't control that. You can only control yourself and how you respond, even to difficult people. And so you just focus on taking the log out of your own eye and seeking the Lord. It's not easy. And this is why the, the chief virtue is needed. And that is humility. The world in pride plays the blame game to defend self and save face. But you know, James is going to tell us next in verse six, God is opposed to the proud and he gives grace to the humble. You are going to have to humble yourself. And just own up to the sin in your heart. Only then will you find God's grace and strength to overcome and grow. A life of peace with God and others, it starts right there. And then it leads to a powerful witness to the world. And so may we learn already to humble ourselves over our sin and just go to Christ. He takes away our sin and gives us life and hope and peace. As James will say, James 4.10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. We'll trust him for that. Until next time, let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, 
We do pray, hallowed be your name. And we also pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because your will is supreme. We are fallen. We, we have many desires built in, but so many now are warped, and we in our flesh are only concerned about ourselves, our glory, our magnification, as if we're God. That's just inherent in our fallenness. But Lord, we are not. You are God. You are supreme. You are the only one worthy of praise and worship and adoration. You're the only one worthy of our lives and, and our time. We thank you for Christ, the Savior, who died to redeem us and, and also rebuild in our minds that right perspective to show us God. And now we need to live that out. We need this calibration every day to be pointed back to the one who is supreme and the one whose will really matters. We have a will, Lord, but we submit it to you. Your will truly be done. We, we desire pleasure and comfort, Lord, but only such that pleases you. Just control us from the inside out. And may your spirit work within us that we would walk in a manner pleasing to you. In this, we will be united. In this, we, the church, will witness to the world of the, the transforming power of your gospel. And so may it be true for us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.